0: Hello, this is Laura Garrard, Young Birder Programs Coordinator with the American Birding Association. For the past 25 years, the ABA has been inspiring young people to explore the world of birding through camps, mentoring programs, and publication of The Fledgling, a magazine where young birders can see their articles and photos in print. Our goal is to create a holistic approach to engaging young people in birding and conservation through art, science and conservation and community leadership programs, allowing them to choose how they participate along the way. With your donation today, you can help us continue the work of supporting young birders into the future. Please donate online at aba.org appeal or call us at 800-850-2473. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm Nate Swick. I neglected to mention last week and all the other news I had to get through. It is a busy time of year, surprisingly enough, that last week was the fourth iteration of Black Birders Week. The effort was started back in 2020 in the weeks following the recorded encounter in Central Park in New York City between birder Christian Cooper and a racist woman who attempted to engage the police against Mr. Cooper when he asked her to leash her dog. If you remember that first week, you remember lots of online events to highlight Blackbirders and Naturalists. That was a necessity in the period. It was it was in the early days of the pandemic, if you remember. There was a there was a lot going on. We have seen it grow from Lots of online events into lots of online events, and now lots of in-person events, which is very cool and honestly how birding should be experienced. It has become an event to talk about not only issues unique to black birders and naturalists, but also perspectives on issues that affect all birders and naturalists, because making a birding community that is inclusive and comfortable, regardless of your background or experience, is something that we all want, and that requires a lot of listening to those folks who have traditionally felt as though they were on the outside looking in Black blackbirders week has been great, great for that. And thankfully for those of us caught up in the Memorial day madness and general hubbub of early summer, black AF and STEM does a great job recapping and generally housing all of the activities. So you can go back and check them out at your leisure. I would encourage you to do so. They are at black AF and STEM on Twitter and black and STEM.com on the internet link in the show notes. Of course, congrats. Once again, on another great Blackbirders week. And quickly, before we move on, the free ABA Community Weekend we're hosting in California's Bay Area is up and ready for you to register. I will be there along with friends from Golden Gate, Audubon, and Leica. It should be fun. Link also for that in the show notes. Uh, We've got people signing up. It would just be me wandering around some eBird hotspot by myself. Also, if you have recommendations for a spot in San Francisco that can host a Birds and Beers that Saturday night, that is the 17th of June, that's TBD, where we're working on that. We would love to hear your your suggestions. Thank you. On to the show itself. We talk 2023 splits and lumps with friend of the ABA, Dr. Nick Block, Western flycatchers, Hawaiian stilts, weird genetic analogies. We've got it all after this week's (music) Rayburns. this is your rare bird focus for the first week in june 2023 florida birders continue to live large in 2023 literally so with the discovery of a large billed turn in brevard county representing a first record of the species in the state and only about the fourth for the aba area and if that wasn't wild enough it was followed a day later by a report of a second slightly more accessible large billed turn in collier County, the two were apparently first noted on the same day, truly seems to be the case that, and I'm sorry for this, one good turn deserves another. Large-billed tern is one of the classic birds of the Amazonian Basin. I'm not kidding about that. They can be found lounging on ephemeral mudflats in the major South American rivers. They do tend to vagrate during the Amazon dry season and have occurred three times in the ABA area previously in Illinois, Ohio, and New Jersey, respectively in 1949, 1954, and the latest in 1988. It's been a while since we've had one of these. Montana strikes again for the second straight week. The state's first Scots Oriole joined by another southwestern vagrant in the state's first dusky capped flycatcher recorded in Sheridan County to continue this impressive run of southern vagrants in that state. And we check in with birders in Alaska where at least two Siberian ruby throats, a stunning little Asian chat, were seen on consecutive days on St. Paul Island in the Pribilofs along with Gray Wagtail and Taiga Flycatcher. This comes, as they frequently do, following a sustained run of West Wind's on the island. Those are the recent highlights, but for the full list, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org slash rba. You can also follow along with all the rare bird news in our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook and in ABA community. It's split and lump season once again, and that means that I turn to our friend, Nick Block, professor of biology at Stonehill College in Easton, Massachusetts, and various ABA committee members over the period of the last decade or so, and perhaps most importantly, since the very beginning of this podcast, the person I talked to when it comes to predicting the decisions of the American Ornithological Society's North American Classification Committee, which sounds very important, but is essentially birding's papal enclave. <laughs> they make okay. the decisions having to do with you know, what birds we can count and what birds you can't, for better or for worse. Anyway, with all that prelude, um, it's good to see you, Nick. Thanks for coming back. Uh, it's always fun to talk to you about taxonomy and whatnot.
1: Yes. Thanks for having me yet again. This is always a good diversion from lots of other <laughs> work things going on. That's right. And what is what
0: is what is taxonomy if not a diversion from <laughs> <all> the rest <laughs> of the birding world? Um, it used to
1: be a lot more central for me, but these days... It's well, I'm glad happy, that you're still willing diversion. to come back.
0: I'm still glad that you're still willing to come back. We've got uh, an interesting slate of proposals that came out this year for people who are perhaps not aware of how this all works. The North American Classification Committee essentially maintains a list of birds for North America. And from that list, the ABA checklist that we use for our various birding games is derived. And so the decisions that they make having to do with splits and lumps, effect. They trickle down to the birds that you see in your field guides or on your checklists or in your eBird or whatever. The latter perhaps less than it has been in recent years, but for the most part, that's how it works. Um, Anything else you want to add, Nick, about the importance of the, the North American Classification Committee? It's sort of a weird thing in the world of natural history, but it does serve a little bit of a purpose for us.
1: Absolutely. It's, it's, you know, it's a little esoteric for some people who like to argue about minutiae of things, including (laughs) myself. But what I always tell my evolution students often when we talk about speciation and and the implications for why it matters where species limits fall is uh, conservation often plays a, a big part of the real world impacts. Because if you have something that's, you know, quote, only a subspecies it may not get the conservation attention that a full species does. And so it can, that, that kind of thing can have kind of real world impacts. So that's, that's often my excuse for <laughs> 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 arguing about these little minutiae. It's like, oh, it can have real impacts. So, but it does. It does. And it's also, you know, on a purely
0: fun birding level, it's, it's fun to think about why birds are the way they are and how evolution ties itself into what is essentially uh, a hobby. Well, some people might take it more seriously than a hobby, but for the most part it is. And and one in which we get to kind of enjoy uh, real science going on too, which is which is fun. Yeah. I mean, I I don't know about you. I like thinking about this stuff. I yeah, think a lot of I, our listeners do. do too.
1: Yes, I think so. I mean, it is what originally put me on my path towards where I am now, actually oh, yeah? was birding, traveling mostly in Mexico, noticing subspecies versus, you know, things that weren't split at the time. And we would argue about they should be split because how on web, you know, in their t- in their book split a lot of things that weren't split at the time. And, you know, that, it, that aspect of uh, seeing the diversity across geography in Mexico and things like that very much is what really made me interested in generally evolution and, and bird speciation and stuff and is a big reason of why I am where I am now. Well, let's take a look at those uh, proposals that
0: we've got for 2023. They came out in like one giant proposal dump back at the end of 2022. So they've been out there for a while. Uh, We sort of wait until May, June to talk about them because those decisions are generally published in July. So we're going to try and predict a few of them, Um, some of them easier than the others. Um, What did you think about this year's proposals? There are a lot, at least to my eyes, a lot of Central American work going on here. It seems to me that's where the sort of the frontiers of bird taxonomy are right now.
1: No, I think that's probably pretty accurate in terms of what's going on in the AOS area. Um, I mean, there's a lot of proposals this year. Uh, yeah. I mean, there have been some, you know, it's on like four different files. Often it's two or three files or something. But um, yes, and a lot of them have to do with taxonomy of Central American things from an AOS perspective.
0: Yeah,
1: um, And it's an area where I'm less connected to as I used to be back Mm -hmm. when I was like a grad student and studying this kind of stuff. Um, But uh, my impression is a lot of it is some rearrangement of things, Mm -hmm. not necessarily splitting and lumping, but there's still some of that. But a lot of it is rearranging what's in what family and what's in what genus based on our, you know, just more complete understanding of uh, phylogenies these days.
0: We're going to try and focus on the ones that have to do with the ABA area. So north of Mexico, that will also make things a little bit more manageable. Otherwise this would be like a three hour uh, conversation, which some people yeah. may like, but that's, that's a lot of bird taxonomy <laughs> We went by, down these point by point. Um, there's about a half a dozen, maybe a little bit more uh, uh, proposals that actually have to do with birds that are, that are familiar to birders in the ABA area, the things that are in our quote unquote North American field guides. Let's, start with the the big one. Should we go right in, make the big splash, right off the top? The uh, proposal that would lump Pacific Slope Flycatcher and Cordilleran, Cordilleran Flycatcher. I'm not exactly sure how that's pronounced just as well uh, if they lump them. Western Flycatcher was split a long time ago maybe for some dubious reasons and now we're correcting that issue. Is that what's going on? I think a lot of birders who struggle with identification of these two species are going to be very happy if the species gets lumped.
1: Yes. I mean, happy on that level, maybe (laughs) unhappy because everyone may lose a a life. Right. Okay. Northwestern crow in a way, you know, but, um, I, I, I do think I wouldn't necessarily say it's so much correcting something as it's, we just understand it better because we Mm -hmm. just have a much better, broader picture of that kind of species group. The, the original work on it, um, done, uh, by Ned Johnson and, and, and others in the eighties, I believe, I want to say that paper was 1989, maybe. Yeah. Um, I was surprised by
0: how long ago that was, it was, yeah, wet, and,
1: and that was, you know, they were doing, uh, uh, work that, you know, Alzheimer's work, which is stuff that people don't really do anymore, but a lot of their stuff was really great and, and great science for the time. In terms of what they were capable of doing on the genetic side of things and the geographic sampling based on what they had you know the the split i you know i i don't know if it would still pass these days you mm-hmm. know but i i don't think that it was a mistake mm-hmm. i think we just have a better understanding of the whole picture now now we have data from the mexican uh range of cordieran or court Cord- i say cordieran i don't know um And we now have, and one of the key things is a much broader sampling in the northern Rockies, where Mm -hmm. there's a big zone of contact between the two groups that the original paper didn't even look at that area. So they really only looked at one small kind of contact zone in northern, northeastern California. Um, And so, you know, what was going on there doesn't seem to necessarily be what's going on in this other big contact zone where the species limits are really hard to define and so that's why they're proposing this split
0: yeah that's sort of been my impression of the whole situation what is the difference then between this like a true hybrid zone and yeah i guess these it's no longer a hybrid zone if these two species subspecies current species are lumped. like where do you draw that line is it just a personal decision or is there some sort of well-defined way to determine that this is a these are subspecies or a species (laughs)
1: yeah that gets to the heart of all the
0: taxonomic questions exactly it's
1: a very subjective question depending on who you ask but i mean in in this case you know the semantics of whether you call it a hybrid zone or intergression zone or contact zone or you know uh, you know sometimes it is just based on someone's own personal view of how to use it because you could call it a hybrid zone even though subspecies Mm -hmm. if you know, or or some people might say it would just refer to a hybrid as something that's between two species. So we call it a contact zone or, you know, zone of integrate, you know, integrate zone or whatever. Um, but in this case, I, you know, I I don't think it matters what we call it. I think it's more, I, a contact zone is a broader category. You know, it doesn't matter. That can yeah. be referred to species, subspecies, whatever. Um, and in in this case, it's something that is really a pattern that's arisen in a lot of Western things that people could probably think of other Western species that have yeah. like Pacific subspecies and a Rocky Mountain subspecies. And this is we'll a talk about very,
0: Pretty yeah, similar, <laughs> it We week. Yeah, exactly. It's a
1: very common biogeographic pattern that occurred because, you know, in past ice ages when glaciers were, you know, covering a lot of the continent, populations of birds got pushed further south. Mm-hmm. And there was one that like ended up kind of on the Pacific coast and one that ended up interior. And as the glaciers receded, they both spread north and then came back into contact. And this seems to be an example of that really common pattern we see and is one where there were some differences that were arising, but didn't seem to reach a point where when they come back into contact, they're going to stay separate. Because in this new contact zone that we now have a lot of data from, uh, thanks to to you know uh, Ethan Link who's one of the main authors on on one of these papers and was one of the proposers here that there's a lot of genetic data now from this area they basically show that there's no evidence for what we call sortative mating where basically you know that they're pairing up with each other the difference yeah 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 in in this in this area in the northern rockies so it's it's um not a well-defined or narrow hybrid zone, which is something we tend to think of as defining good species these days. Because hybrid, a hybrid zone doesn't preclude calling things different species. But in this case, there's just very little evidence that they're telling each other apart at all or that hybrids are less fit than their parents. Are, you know, So the broad sampling geographically and genetically now that's available, thanks to this 2019 paper, was... Uh, makes a pretty good case for a lump. I think.
0: Yeah, I, I was struck in particular just by how comprehensive that case was. Not only the the genetic work that you talk about, but they look at vocalizations as well, which have been increasingly used to determine cryptic species or new species or or splits where where splits need to occur, and they yep. or in this case where lumps need to occur. And they found essentially that there is a range of vocalizations from these birds in different extremes of the range, but once you get to that that zone of integration. Things get really murky with birds doing a different call that takes into account uh, a different song I should say that takes into account aspects of both of what we have considered to be classic Pacific slope and cordilleran songs i mean it's just everything seems to point to the direction that these are these are one species
1: yes, yeah I, th- I think in the authors even or the proposers even cast a little doubt on whether or not we would even call them subspecies because wow. of the yeah. extent of kind of integration that's happening i'm not sure i would go that far because the genetics actually do show kind of four distinct clusters Mm -hmm. um two of them being what we typically call cordy in the u.s and pacific slope but also two clusters in mexico and one of the reasons that i do from well okay i mean we kind of know what happened with this proposal already it's a not a well-kept secret at this point (laughs) Um, but one of the reasons for the lump is that pacific slope that genetic cluster Is embedded within the things that are considered cordilleran. So you know (laughs) the the U.S. cordilleran, and then two groups in Mexico. And the one that's most distinct is actually the southernmost group in Mexico. It's not Mm -hmm. Pacific slope. So either you got to make it four species or one. And yeah, so if you want to keep them monophyletic,
0: right? Which it doesn't sound like. Well, yeah, which it doesn't sound like they want to do. I mean, that's that's a bridge too far, and that's probably a very uh, it's weird to use terms like liberal and conservative in this context, but a very liberal interpretation of the species concept, would you say?
1: Yes, it would. It would have to be a fairly kind of narrow species concept, I think, to to consider those at the species level. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't see that happening anytime soon.
0: <laughs> it's interesting that you point up the fact that there are these four populations essentially that sort of break up around you know pretty predictable lines, because that's the sort of thing we see in a lot of different species out there. And in fact, it's part of another proposal that was, I'm not sure if it's going to pass, but it's an interesting one from the same perspective, this um, this potential split of woodhouses, scrub jay, which when in itself was a split from what we used to call scrub jay, which was split into woodhouses in the interior West and, and California in the West, which is essentially the Cordilleran and Pacific slope, respectively, of that sort of species group. Now we've got this potential... Woodhouse's scrub jay split into I forget the names that they gave one of it was another um another epidemic name sumacris i think but um but it's interesting that this sort of pattern that we see causing us so much trouble in western flycatcher is also a pattern that we see in other species out there including including this one
1: yes yeah this is the the pattern when you include mexico when you include mexico not not dissimilar and this is i think a, a a hallmark of decisions these days are on kind of our aba species Mm -hmm. so many of them extend into mexico and the breeding season like you have to include them make the most informed decision possible right? Um, there's still some examples of this out there. I would say the solitary Vireo complex and, you know, uh,
0: even more complicated that, than it seems.
1: <laughs> yeah, maybe so. Uh, yeah. I can't remember the details of it, but you know, that, that group, there's a one isolated down in Chiapas and stuff that might be different, you know, but anyway. Um, but yeah, so the, the Woodhouse is Scrub J. This is one that would not change anyone's lists for the ABA area. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but it has a group In southern Mexico, very similar to this area where the distinctive Cordilleran flycatcher is, uh yeah, called the Sumacrasts in the past, but they actually they propose a bunch of different non uh epidemic kind of names for it in the proposal. Um, but it is one that's not incredibly distinctive kind of morphologically. It's it's Mm -hmm. basically kind of bigger and browner, if I remember correctly. And um, but you know, again, this is this is the genetic evidence that came out in a paper last year, um, it basically corroborated the evidence from a 2014 paper that just had less genetic data. Um, mm-hmm. but really shows that there's this obvious split between this Sumacrasts uh, group and the rest of Woodhouses. Um, and there's they've done some more advanced genetic analyses too that show that there's no evidence of any kind of gene flow. While there is evidence of limited gene flow between California scrub jay. <laughs> and woodhouses and you know in the uh in the Sierra nevada i can't remember exactly where but uh so there's there's more gene flow between those two which we consider species than between woodhouses and this kind of sumacrests. new new Yeah, so, it, it's I'm one like,
0: that i'm looking at all the, all the possible names there's some good ones in here
1: that's yeah good. yeah no that's exactly they didn't they there's like five or six that they proposed yeah, great um yeah. Uh, yeah, I was happy to see that they weren't proposing going back to Sumacrest, J, which <laughs> that has been called in the past, you know, but yeah, uh, but yeah this is one where I, I'd be, again, you know, I, I never read the tea leaves, right. But, you know, the, I, I'd be surprised if they didn't split it because there is, there's there's now very good evidence that there's less gene flow between those two than there is between California and what houses, which are already split. So, you know, it's, uh, again, to be consistent, it seems like that split is coming. One aspect of this proposal that I find a little confusing, though, is that the proposal says that what we call woodhouses, the northern kind of woodhouses that we could split, should go back to being called Western scrub jay. (laughs) No,
0: that's very confusing
1: and i was like no no <laughs> like, no no, no, no. <laughs> i'm i'm 100 in
0: favor Listen to this podcast no i'm 100 in favor with eliminating epidemic names and coming up with something better but western ain't it <laughs> because that is <laughs> those of us who started burning a long time ago
1: uh would be exactly. very confused <laughs> that's yeah i mean i still have field guides that call it western scrum <laughs> right. so let's let's not go back to that but you know who knows what they'll actually do with uh uh with those names if if they split they may do a whole <laughs> separate proposal to to consider that which they've done before for yeah. you know english names but yeah so I mean, what is
0: your sort of opinion on this uh increased i don't know it seems like there's an increased attention on these birds of the western cordillera in mexico and how those sort of incorporate into species that we think of in the western united states and canada as well does this feel like a change to you i i like i'm not a bird scientist, I'm not a bird taxonomist. My interaction with it is pretty much limited to these proposals every single year, but there are a lot more of them that are taking into account these birds uh in western Mexico and how they fit into this
1: whole matrix as well. I don't know
0: if you have any sort of insight into that
1: i mean i i I don't know that I would call it new um yeah. on a relative kind of time frame i you know I guess that's it's a relative thing, but I would say that certainly papers that have dealt with subspecies we're kind of interested in just in the US and Canada mm-hmm. much more yes yeah. these days i would say include uh the mexican groups um all the way down to you know this southern sierra madre del sur and and everything like because yeah that's a that area in southern mexico has a lot of endemism yeah or yeah. you know it's underrated
0: i think yeah
1: species subspecies level whatever of things that do then extend all the way up into the southwestern us or northern rockies or or what have you it's it's all part of one big stretch of a species. And yeah, I think it's really cool that they're now including these other groups because it gives us a better appreciation for the things we see up here and how the overall evolutionary history of something we see in Colorado, you know, is is the complexity of it. And I I always love understanding that stuff, you know, but there've been a lot of papers that have come out kind of highlighting that recently though. I would Mm -hmm. say, yeah. I, I, this is one my my shout out to the the mccormick lab at mm-hmm. occidental college yeah. john mccormick so he was one of the authors on this scrub jay paper and he's been working with scrub jays and other mexican species for a long time they've done some amazing kind of phylogenetic work and highlighting this kind of diversity in mexico that we aren't necessarily aware of they've we've had specimens for a long time but the genetic work that they've put in is really impressive and and like the lead author i think on this recent paper that's the basis of their split was an undergrad in his lab like i just mm. I, I just this is my shout out i i've i have actually i think i met john once but like his lab does amazing stuff with phylogeography and bird taxonomy for north america
0: yeah, I, I believe that the uh, McCormick Lab and Occidental was behind the recent paper about stellar stays, too, which did not make it into yes. this year's proposals that will probably be, I assume, probably next year, uh, the potential stellar stay split as well. So, yeah, there's a lot yeah. of cool stuff. I mean, just considering the geography of the region, there's this huge gap between the impressive mountains in West Mexico and where the mountains get really big in, in um, the U.S. and uh, Canada as well. And it just totally makes sense, like intuitively, if you're interested in how topography impacts evolution, that you know there would be something cool going on there uh it's neat to see that getting highlighted over more and more and more absolutely so let's talk about another uh split that um the aos sort of sort of uh jumped the gun on in a later proposal they they propose that northern goshawk, which we know as a whole arctic species found which means found throughout the northern hemisphere throughout north america throughout eurasia should be split i think in some European taxonomies, it might actually already be split. So this would be in, you know, in concert with, with them, um, into an American subspecies, North American subspecies and a Eurasian subspecies, or Eurasian species and a North American species. Um, and I'm gonna throw it in a little bit with a similar proposal that was put out that had to do with another whole Arctic species, three-toed woodpecker, which is currently split into a North American species and a Eurasian subspecies. And there is another proposal that proposes to lump the uh, three toed woodpeckers and to split the goshawk. And we actually know that the goshawk split did go through. So we're going to have a new name for our goshawk, probably North American goshawk or American goshawk, because there's a proposal in D that says that talks about the names. How are those similar and how are those different?
1: Yeah. I mean, it is interesting to see opposite directions on, on this for taxa. Yeah. Um, I mean, I do think, I mean, as you said, we, we kind of know that the goshawk split went through. Um, And yeah, I think it's going to be American goshawk and Eurasian goshawk. And, um, and you know, that was based on, they had, they had mitochondrial data. They had nuclear DNA data, um, a a pretty good vocal analysis paper that just came out last year. Um, And so, you know, this is a nice data set. To, to, base this off of. And I'm, you know, that's part of why the split went through is it's a really strong data set, but um, you know, their vocal data showed that the American one is just as distinct from Eurasian one as the Madagascar goshawk. It's called H- Hens's goshawk. And you know, their diagnostic differences in both types of DNA and everything. They um, look
0: so similar though.
1: <laughs> yeah. And there's, there's a lot more variation than I even really kind of realized in the Eurasian one um and how pale the eastern asian ones are and uh and uh, yeah like i didn't even realize that until i was looking at you know this this will actually add an, a species to the this area right. um most likely i think the commit the, the checklist committee probably will then need to assess the the records because there's a record from labrador mm-hmm. and a couple records from shemya island and yeah. the aleutians the places um, you would expect
0: Eurasia yes, exactly.
1: <laughs> From two different subspecies, right? So, yeah, the, you know, and, yeah that's and, cool. But both being what would now be called Eurasian, um, and, and thankfully those can be confirmed. At least the Labrador one, because the Labrador one is a specimen that's mm-hmm. now I think it's um, University of Michigan's collection, and so they could sequence it to confirm it. Um, so that would be cool because it'll add a add a, it'll add a species to the ABA list. Not too many people's life list for no, ABA. not really. <laughs> no, probably <laughs> not. A couple lucky people in Shemya. <laughs> Um, yeah, it, it is interesting to think about.
0: You know, I, I've heard the concept, especially with goals, this concept of ring species, essentially species mm-hmm. that are um, in a ring around the top of the earth. And the species on, at some point, the two most extreme meet each other and they look extremely different, um, despite the fact that they are the same species. And it, I don't know, I guess I always thought of um, goshawk northern goshawk as sort of a ring example of a ring species, especially when you're talking about these extremely pale Asian species and I guess the darker ones in Europe that look more like the birds that we think of as goshawks here in North America. Um yeah, it's it'll be interesting to see if there's actually more kind of cryptic species within Eurasia too. Or is it just one long um clinal variation all the way all the way around.
1: Yeah. And I'm not I'm not sure because I don't remember the details of what that kind of dna evidence from eurasia only kind of i can't remember what that looks like mm-hmm. all, all i remember is you know that that all the eurasian ones do group together separate yeah, from the north fairly, american yeah. ones um but uh i'm not sure what levels of divergence are within that eurasian yeah. one because there are definitely several subspecies described so yeah. um but but so to contrast this with the the exactly. three-toed yeah. woodpecker though you know so with the goshawk there were kind of Clear morphological differences, genetic differences, vocal differences, and with the three-toed woodpecker, essentially, you know, so this was split in two thousand three, I believe, by the AOS. The American one was split from the Eurasian one, and that was based, kind of, partly at least, on an obvious mitochondrial DNA difference. Mm-hmm. Um, but as near as I could tell, that's it, right? So, so morphological. Really? You know, so we've talked about the difference
0: between mitochondrial and nuclear uh, no. DNA here before. The mitochondrial is the the sign that tells you that the the road the highway is splitting, and the nuclear DNA is where the road actually splits into two different highways.
1: Sure, <laughs> sure. There we, yeah, we've definitely <laughs> talked about that plenty in the past. I have
0: a lot of a lot of uh, metaphors for exactly what this means to make sense yeah. in my own
1: head. So. <laughs> and and this is one where I, I think the lump is. Mostly being kind of proposed because the another checklist, the Handbook for the Birds of the World, Birdlife International checklist, they they have that is, they are considered one species there, mm-hmm. and this is part of why we've seen so many proposals in the last couple of years. Is is they're trying to kind of have alignment among all our global taxonomies, right. and this I think this proposal is part of that. Um, and they want the North American committee to vote on this just to have a position on it. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, but this was proposed with no recommendation. um, Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. By Kevin Winker. And, and part of that is because it's just, we don't have enough data to kind of make a great, you know, like another change. There's no Mm -hmm. nuclear data, at least that I'm aware of that's been published. Um, any vocal analyses have been really limited, I think. and the the handbook of the birds of the world checklist that w- that lump was pretty much just based on morphology mm-hmm. and as we've also talked about in the past that does not necessarily mean it's one species you know cryptic yeah. species yeah. are a thing yeah. so i you know the 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 lump is there i think is a proposal just because other checklists have lumped it i really don't think it's going to pass though because they just don't have enough data uh, to make another change. So hopefully someone's yeah. working on this and we'll get nuclear, nuclear data, vocal analysis. Hopefully we'll, we'll see that happen soon. Yeah, I
0: was going to say, do, do people propose these sort of changes to the taxonomy, knowing that they're probably not going to pass, just to set a marker down and say, this is a thing that people should focus on. If, you are, I don't know, if you're an enterprising grad student who's looking for something to do, here's something that
1: needs to be done. I think some have been a little like that, where you know it'd be great. You know, I I would, as an upcoming grad student, I think it would be this is a great source for a potential project, right? Um, But I think a lot of these that have come through with no recommendations, which seems odd. It's like you're proposing something, but then saying vote no on it, right? But a lot of those has come through recently, and it, it really has, I think, just been to get them on the record with a particular taxonomic decision because the global taxonomic checklists that we have are not in agreement. And so they're trying, you know, the working group on avian checklists um, is, is trying to come up with the consensus. And so this is their way of getting the North American AOS committee on record about this particular decision. And so, yeah.
0: Yeah. And, and we've talked about, we talked about the WGAC, the, uh, um, last year a little bit yeah. in thinking, you know, This is like eBird is heavily involved. Cornell Lab of Ornithology is heavily involved in this effort. And if there is any sort of conflict down the road between eBird taxonomy and ABA, well, AOS taxonomy that is used by the ABA, a lot of state bird recommendings and notably the federal government. um, If there is a change between those, if there's a conflict between those, what does that mean for conservation? I think that's sort of an open question.
1: I I think it's very open. You know what what taxonomy the government follows to make their decisions regarding conservation money I, I, is I don't even know what 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 is their official checklist. I don't know if it's AOS. Yeah. Is it AOS? Okay. Yeah. Um and yeah, so this this it will potentially have implications for uh, uh, it's probably a very small handful of, of of taxa, of species, but it certainly could, and and it, it is good. I think it's good, even though this it feels kind of strange when you see a proposal that basically is then saying, no, no, this isn't good enough. Vote no. <laughs> it is it is good to have some. I like I like that yeah. they are putting some of these on the record because they're yeah. they're also like you said, highlighting areas where we just need more information. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about another. We'll,
0: we'll talk about something that has a. I didn't plan for this to segue this way, but it's actually worked out pretty well. We'll talk about one that does have. Um, perhaps import to the federal government. And that is the potential split of the black blackneck stilt subspecies that is found in Hawaii into mm-hmm. what I imagine would be called Hawaiian stilt. There are a handful of these species that have populations on North America that have what we still consider subspecies in Hawaii. Blackneck stilt is one of them. Mm-hmm. Would, do you think that it is likely to be Accepted is the is the science good? It seems like it because Hawaii is way out there, and there, I can't imagine that there is any sort of uh, gene flow between the continental black necked stilts and the Hawaiian black necked stilts. But also, that means a lot for potential conservation decisions that need to be made for Hawaiian birds if there is a new Hawaiian endemic out there.
1: Yes, absolutely. And this is uh, some other proposals that maybe we'll talk about also mm-hmm. are relevant with the island taxa being yeah. proposed for splits because on those islands. They, they may be endangered. Yeah, and there's a few of them has,
0: the, for Mexican species as well. Yes, exactly. Little, yeah. Cool yeah, island islands off the west coast of Mexico. Yeah.
1: Yes, but if Hawaiian stilt is you know quote just a black neck stilt then it might not get that kind of attention. And it does. It it is. Oh, I can't remember the exact conservation status, but I'm pretty sure there ha- it has had problems with native you know freshwater marshes. Yeah, uh, losing habitat. But um, but this is one where I mean, I, I personally would be surprised if it goes through Hmm. and it's, I think along the same lines of the three toed woodpecker that we just talked about though, and that they just, they, there aren't enough data to potentially provide the evidence needed for a change at the moment right? Because this is, this is actually, this is a really messy species complex, the stilts, right? Yeah, because the, yeah, the
0: there's another part of it that's like, consider black necked stilt, a subspecies yeah. of black winged stilt, which is another one of those all the yeah. way found around the world sort of species yeah. that are a mess. Yeah, and some, some
1: people have said that it should all just be called, that, it, that all of these should just be one species, stilts. you know, so everything from <laughs> you know, the, yeah, our white back stilts in South America, they yeah. have sometimes been split from the black net stilts of the rest of South America and North America, but they apparently hybridize, um, you know, black winged and pied in the old world appear to hybridize in areas. And then the black stilt in New Zealand definitely hybridizes with the pied stilts that have kind of somewhat recently, apparently kind of colonized New Zealand. So it's, this really messy group Mm -hmm. that we, I think have more anecdotal information on hybrids because we see them like it's an obvious when you see what, like they're very clear morphologically hybrids. So you can clearly see one that might be intermediate between Black. black and white or something. And so we see these, but as far as I know, there's not any real way, like, or any data set that people have analyzed in a kind of systematic way to try and assess levels of hybridization or how fit those hybrids are or things like that. So, um, it's a it's a messy situation and i have a feeling that they wouldn't split hawaiian without understanding the bigger context of the whole like super species of of yeah so who who knows like you said though i completely agree that i i don't think there's any gene flow going on it's a a relatively recent colonization from the history of the hawaiian islands perspective but it's long enough ago that there's now a clearly distinct kind of phenotype you know they clearly look different than our black neck stilts on yeah. the mainland and you know i don't i don't think that you're getting black neck stilts dispersing to the Hawaiian islands yeah, and hybridizing so yeah. it's one of those things that is you know we've we've talked about in the past too it's speciation is happening yeah but you know when is it quote, when is know, like it finished yeah, or when or does, it does
0: it cross it, the line um, yeah or is yeah. it ever finished it's never really finished it's always just sort of flowing like a river outside of its banks if you were a researcher and you were thinking about how to unravel the stilt knot not 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 to name check two different shorebird species but um, <laughs> the stilt problem perhaps that's a better way to put it um how would you do that
1: ooh so i so i think with hawaiian stilt on its own i think with a a, a kind of a broad genetic data set they Someone might be able to make the case of like how long it's been since it diverged when it colonized, mm. and that there's no more gene flow. I think you could probably make the case most easily that Hawaiian still is definitely acting like its own biological species mm-hmm. these days. The others, I think, are going to be a bit tougher because yeah, there's this hybrid zone in northern South America between what are now considered subspecies, but have been considered species in the past of our blacknecks. Um, and then there's like multiple apparent contact zones among the old world ones. And so this is, it is a very much like a kind of PhD dissertation level project of needing to get samples from multiple parts of the world. And it, yeah, it's, it's, uh, to, if you want the clear picture, it's going to take quite a bit of geographic sampling. It's, it's, for global species or nearly global species or super species it's it's a tough one
0: it, and even then it may not even it may not even solve any any mysteries it may just uh as with these things yeah uh
1: pose more questions I mean, what's going i mean i what's going on in new zealand is really interesting mm-hmm. as a kind of an, yeah, an I'm not aside, aware of it's yeah. very strange like so pied or white-headed or i can't remember whatever the the what, it, what it's called has recently colonized or somewhat recently colonized the islands of new zealand where black stilt is an endemic yeah yeah and that colonization apparently was facilitated by humans changing the habitat and making more habitat that's available for like the pied stilts and so hybridization started happening but gene flow has slowed down because humans have directly intervened and prevented mixed pairs from breeding together they're breaking them apart yeah, I mean, New Zealand is very, you know, they're they're yeah, they're they're pretty uh, intense about protecting their native species. Yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, some of the things they've done, I don't know, would happen in other parts of the world, like in terms of like culling certain individuals, like to make sure that. It, it, so it's it's, <laughs> it's like Romeo and Juliet,
0: but with split with still yeah, <laughs> it's
1: it's a, yeah exactly. <laughs> it's a fascinating lovers intersection of like human habitat alteration and speciation and conservation and it's it's just, it's an interesting picture going huh. on here. I had no uh, idea I have
0: to look into that. That's pretty wild.
1: Like essentially humans are trying to keep them from turn, like despeciating. They they're trying to keep them separate as evolutionary lineages. Yeah,
0: and I think anyone who knows uh you know teenagers they're not going to be able to uh be <laughs> able to keep them separate. You you, just, right. you keep them separate you just make them want each other more. That's all it is. If, if teen to comedies have taught me anything. Um <laughs> I don't know if i will may cut that part out. I don't even know. <laughs> <laughs> that was a weird diversion. Anyway, um, one, one more thing I wanted to talk about that sort of affects a species that is, is found in, um, the ABA area, but also is sort of centered on the part of the species that is found throughout middle America is uh, hepatic tanager. A lot of birders are familiar with hepatic tanager. It's found in the Southwestern uh, United States and has a pretty significant pattern of vagrancy all over the continent. It's been found, um, you know, all over the East, up into Canada. It's a, it's a species that vagrates pretty readily. Um, but it's also one of those black boxes of, of taxonomy and that, um, it's found throughout Central America. Parsing apart those taxonomic relationships has been extremely difficult. And there's a proposal in this, in this recent slate of proposals to split it. Was it five different ways it's a, to, a hepatic yeah. caniger a mega split sort of along the lines uh, maybe of the house wren house mega split that we talked about. Um, do you think that these sort of giant multi-species, half a dozen species splits ever get passed? Or is it just, again, sort of laying down a marker for what work needs to be done to discern these uh, differences between these populations?
1: I mean, I think some have passed. And I, yeah. I, it's one of those that off the top of my head, I will never remember which one. Solitary vario is the only but, one I
0: can think of. And that was only yeah. three.
1: But, yeah i know they've definitely been proposed i guess the clapper red
0: one was three two and one of them was in mexico yes oh. that's true
1: yeah yeah. i forgot about it. but in, in this case uh, you know it's it, it is this is a um an interesting species in just how widespread it is mm-hmm. different habitats it's in like it's uh, the elevational ranges it, it's 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 up there with one of the as as van remsen mentioned in his proposal it's up there with one of the most kind of diverse species in terms of where it can live and where you know in in its range um, uh, of anything in the americas so Mm -hmm. um it's uh but that it makes it kind of inherently messy from taxonomic and evolutionary standpoint you have a species that's living in all sorts of areas so it opens up specialization and maybe speciation along specialization lines but in this case it's you know the so this proposal really would you know for would only for the north american would only split the kind of northern group which is kind of from nicaragua what north to to our birds here in in the u.s Mm -hmm. um from the group that starts in costa rica and goes into northern south america but there's all this other complexity in south america as well
0: Unsurprising but for us.
1: The South American checklist committee is there's a proposal about it to yeah. uh, being uh, you know uh, proposed to them as well. Um, So Van Remsen put this through with a no recommendation. I, I do think that it probably won't get split, but this is one where I'd say yet because because it's so messy. There's so many. Areas of potential like contact or areas that need clarification right now, there's kind of some geographic gaps in both the genetic sampling and vocalization kind of analyses mm-hmm. that when something is this messy, you really just need that really broad scale sampling before kind of a look before you leap kind of scenario You really want to make sure that you're doing this right for something that's so widespread um I mean, in one aspect of it is that, you know, one of these groups, I can't remember, Ebert, I think has three like groups for, for this one. Right. Yeah. Um, the the Lutia group, which is the Central American down to Northern South America, it, it, the limited kind of some limited genetic analysis shows that that's not even a monophyletic group. There's one that's like <laughs> sister to the hepatic group up in Southwestern US and yeah. one that's sister to another South American group. So like even on its own, you can't split it three ways like ebert has three groups you can't even do that split so it's, it's yeah. like you said it's it's very messy um and the other thing is the split among the subspecies at least in this limited genetic sampling in hepatic tanager was just as deep as the split between our eastern and western summer tanagers which hmm. you know That's no one has proposed a closet as being split different yeah. And, yeah, yeah yeah potentially so yeah. um you know and, and on the genetic level the divergence among in, in the species that's like from southwestern US to south america this really widespread thing it, in the big picture the, the splits aren't that big compared to you know other things that are have similar ranges that are split into different species so it's so a really it's 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 a fascinating but messy species yeah. um and I, I does seem like as as kind of van remsen mentioned in the proposal one that just needs more data yeah which is always a frustrating answer, but yeah, it's
0: with the it's the sci- it's the accurate scientific answer um, yeah. most of the time. Do you ever do you ever think about like what has to have happened over the period of Earth's history that caused those weird relationships to happen? Like, if I'm thinking, you know, if if the hepatic tanager, if there are two populations that are a sister to completely different groups of hepatic tanagers, like was that two separate invasions? By hepatic tannagers, what possibly could have prompted such a is like just widespread change in the climate over a period of five, ten thousand years that caused certain groups to go. Co- it 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 takes you down a rabbit hole once you start thinking about this stuff.
1: Yeah. And this is where it, it the species like this in particular, it will be a rabbit hole that you like never come out of because it is <laughs> it, it is it is an outlier kind of in its yeah. in its the big phylogeographic picture of this species is a bit of an outlier because a lot of them, you know, in, in things that when we know there's like an isolated population here and here, like we can, we can picture the evolutionary history. We kind of know what happened. We can line up those dates of splitting to things like climate shifts and and whatnot, but things like hepatic tanager, I don't, I don't know. I don't know, man. It's, (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's just, so messy and so widespread and the relationships don't seem to make a ton of sense yet that it's it. Yeah. We just need, and, and as was mentioned in this proposal and some others, it's like, it's, it's a plug for how important it is to get this really broad geographic sample yeah. before you can really figure out the true history of, of something.
0: Was there anything else in this slate of proposals for this year that you found interesting that we have not talked about there was a lot of kind of cool caribbean stuff there's a lot of as we mentioned a lot of cool central american stuff was there anything that really caught your eye
1: yeah i would say the other ones that kind of caught my eye and this is because i have a little bit of bias towards my history of birding in mexico way back in the Mm -hmm. day like is that yeah there's there seems to be some uh i don't know if i call momentum or attention whatever towards endemics on some islands off west mexico mm-hmm. so socorro island yeah. and the tres marias islands both have a, a suite of endemic taxa that many are considered subspecies but some of these proposals are you know socorro island has a uh, three four a endemic dove species, and a
0: mockingbird and a- um
1: including one that's something that's extinct um yeah. and the dove is extinct in the wild yeah. um but there's the wren the mockingbird and the wren. parakeet yeah.
0: wrens are everywhere they get everywhere
1: <laughs> yeah one of the proposals is actually to split the perula that's out there so it's related to tropical perula but um i don't i don't know this one was uh i, I kind of think it might work this is one where i am it's hard to know what the committee's going to say because <laughs> there's there's only mitochondrial dna kind of and you know you know what they about that these days um but that mitochondrial dna does show that socorro is actually separate like that that tropical and northern are sister to each other with socorro out from them yeah. so yeah so they might split that and so that, yeah, that would, again, that, that adds to the conservation aspect of this. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and also potentially like, I don't know, maybe more birders are going to try and go to these islands. They're really far flung places. Not yeah. They're easy way to- out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think people yeah.
0: underappreciate how far uh, off the Mexican mainland that they are. Yeah.
1: And, but that's, that's one thing I like. I thought it was interesting because I wonder if there will be some hardcore listeners who are now, you know, see a little bit more of like an opportunity to go to these places that yeah. no one ever would think to go to yeah. before. But um, what's interesting is another proposal was for lumping the parakeet, <laughs> which they only <laughs> put th- four years ago. Yeah. But I, I don't think that lump is going to go through. But
0: thanks so much to Nick Block. He is a professor of biology at Stonehill College in Easton, Massachusetts, one of our friends at the ABA, and the person. We always, for good reason, talk to about splits and lumps. We'll see how that all pans out. the The votes are scheduled to come out sometime in July. That's usually the case. So we'll 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 look again when that happens. But uh, I think I think we made some good predictions on this one, especially for the ones that we already knew. So, so that's <laughs> yeah, always nice. Yeah, I feel, I feel pretty confident about a couple of those confident. predictions. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, thank you so much, Nick. Uh, it was always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Nate. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast, the best way to support it is to join the ABA. You get a lot of benefits, including our magazines, discounts to partners like Princeton University Press, Beauty o Books, Corner Lab of Ornithology, and more. You can find out how to do that at aba.org slash join. Special shout out this week to James Rivers of Darlington, South Carolina, who joined the ABA and noted this podcast as a reason for doing so. Thank you so much. Welcome to the ABA. And also, as a reminder, we're in the middle of our nesting season appeal. You may have heard the note at the of the episode. If you can give anything to the American Birding Association to help support our young birder programs, please do so. You can get information about that at aviator.org appeal. Technical production is by John Lowry, who hopes that this flurry of southern vagrants to the Great Lakes brings him a Michigan Chuck Wills widow, a phenomenon he calls a dream of midsummer night jars. Social media is by Maggie Fitzgibbon, who lives way up in northern Minnesota, where she hears lots of fascinating bird song and has even trained her local birds to come to fish in a process she calls the taming of the loon. You can find us online at aba.org on social media. Most everywhere is American Birding Association on Twitter. We are at ABA. In times like these, with Acadian Flycatcher, Eastern Wood Peewee, and others out my back door, I am frequently reminded of the very first thing the aspiring birder must ask themselves when it comes to flycatchers. Phoebe or not Phoebe? That is the question. Questions, comments can come to podcast at aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy, everybody. Till next week.